mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com This is costing women's lives. In health and healthcare, women are not being served and treated in the same way as men are. At puberty, you learn about like your period, but you don't learn about the entire other part of the menstrual cycle. Across the menstrual cycle, we also have different nutrient requirements. So much happens when we're asleep. It's not something you can like kind of skip out on. We can tie it to basically every health outcome. It's when we release most of our growth hormones and anabolic hormones. So it's the biggest low-hanging fruit that we can have for our health. We do have different nutritional requirements to men, and that is vitamins and minerals. Around pregnancy, we need folic acid. Through the menopause, we need vitamin D and calcium. It's one of those issues that like, I cannot believe isn't talked about more. How are we getting away with this? is up guys and welcome to a new episode of working hard hardly working i am so excited for this one this was a great chat it was all about the differences in medicine between male and female and the fact that like the differentiation between like what we're taught in terms of nutrition and everything about our bodies and what the actual reality of that is when looking at male versus female bodies. There is so much to learn here and so much actionable stuff from Hazel who is dual qualified as a doctor and also in nutrition and I think you're going to find it incredibly interesting if not like completely enraging when you hear about the realities of the medical space when it comes to female research and the inclusion of anyone other than men in uh, clinical studies. So I hope you really enjoy this episode. I think you're going to learn a lot. Let me know how you find it. And as always, please rate and subscribe to the podcast. It really helps other people discover us and helps us to be able to get more amazing guests like Hazel. So thank you so much for listening. And as always, have a lovely day. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for having me. I'm very excited to be here. We actually recorded an episode on Hazel's podcast a few weeks ago, weeks ago, months ago. No, it was weeks. It's quite recently. <laughs> I have a good old concept of time. Lost in short-term memory <laughs> there. <laughs> I genuinely get told off a lot for saying like the other day because I'm always like the other day and it will be like Fine. seven months ago, um, <laughs> which apparently is not like appropriate to do the other day, but I have like no concept of time at all. I just get up, do my day and move on. So I want to get straight into your kind of background and giving some context on your expertise and your job and everything like that so that people can understand what we're going to talk about in this episode and how it kind of affects them, why they should know about it. So let's get back to way back when, early life. Could you give like a whistle-stop tour of essentially how you got to where you are now, yeah. career-wise, who you are, et cetera, et cetera? For sure. I will give you the elevator 60-second <laughs> pitch love if I can. Perfect. Um, so way back when, when I was 14, I lost my father to a stroke. 
And that was the reason I decided I wanted to study medicine and become mm. a doctor. Yeah. I didn't get the results I needed to study in Dublin. If people haven't picked up from the accent, I'm Irish. So I went to Wales, did a undergrad in biomedical sciences or medical sciences in South Wales for three years, then went into graduate entry medicine for another four years. Oh, that's so interesting. So there are obviously multiple different routes into medicine. Yeah. Obviously, the more traditional one is studying medicine at university. Is that right? Do most yeah. people do that? Yeah. I love that. I love the fact that you kind of saw it as something you wanted to do and took a different route to go there. Was there any anything during that point that made you think, oh, maybe I won't do medicine? Or were you pretty No, I was pretty dead set. And the course that I joined was like fast track into Cardiff University Med School. Mm-hmm. And so they were, would select the top... I can't remember 10 I think you for interview anyway okay and so I just worked my ass off for that degree I actually came top of my year and then went into med school but slightly older at this point like which I think benefited me because Mm. I got out all the uni kind of partied lifestyle in the first degree and then I was really serious for med school and then I qualified in 2016, moved to London, which was my first choice and started working in a busy London hospital here And throughout this time, whilst I was at med school, I started the Food Medic, which is my brand. And that also, I guess, stems from my interest in how our lifestyles impact our health, Mm -hmm. um, which is related to how my dad passed away because he died from stroke, which is like largely preventable in terms Mm -hmm. of the risk factors. And we talked about this at med school, but it was just like pain lip service, really. Yeah, I've heard there's like a because I remember kind of when I was originally starting in the fitness industry my general interest in fitness how the I don't know if it was from you or if it was general kind of because I remember you know I followed you for a long time and I remember there was there's something about the fact that like as a doctor you're essentially people can come to you about you know it might be a kind of dietitian type thing but actually in med school you get kind of like one lecture on on nutrition which seems insane yeah that's it like I can tell you how the gut functions but in terms of like learning how to apply nutritional knowledge is is like not something that doctors are trained to do so I actually did return and do a master's in nutrition in clinical nutrition at UCL and then worked as a nutrition doctor for a while so I'm like dual qualified as a nutritionist Then the pandemic hit and I started writing The Female Factor, which is my third book. My first two were largely nutrition and recipe books. And The Female Factor was like a completely different book Mm. uh, with the same publishers. So I had to really like convince them to trust me not to do another like healthy blogger sitting on the counter holding a salad type of book. Which I can imagine is a lot more commercial in a way like I I mean I'm this is totally up my street like the female (laughs) factor is like exactly the type of stuff I want to be reading about but I know especially when it comes to I mean when I originally had conversations about my book having even having moved out the fitness industry and having no fitness I don't have any fitness qualifications I've always hired people with fitness qualifications in order to be able to you know be in the positions in the companies that for example at Shreddy so you know obviously everything's kind of qualified in terms of the advice but I remember the amount of publishers that I essentially had to rule out because they were being like and where's the fitness part of the book yeah and I was like oh you literally like as in I've talked about fitness online as someone engaging in fitness and someone who owns a company within the fitness space I'm not going to be writing like a 28 day you know this to this for 
this kind of published book it's like that's very different from like the direction I want to go to but I know that within the health and fitness space they want to have a kind of like 14 days to a happy gut or whatever which is very like valuable in its own right but I can imagine once you've done two of those and you're kind of being like actually my background is more like the you know this kind of research-based stuff that I want to be able to talk about I can imagine that took a bit of persuasion it took a bit of persuasion and there's nothing wrong with the other books like I really enjoyed writing them but like this felt like a really significant piece of work that I needed to do and when I said I would write the book I didn't actually know what it would look like Mm -hmm. I was only like stepping into the space of research but I was noticing as like a woman but also as a doctor to many women that like in health and healthcare, women are not being served and treated in the same way as men are. Mm-hmm. And then they're not having the same outcomes. And yes, they're living longer, but with poor health. And so I really wanted to understand why this was. And I was noticing like little biases and how we treat male and female patients in the hospital as well. So I like stepped into the research and just opened this minefield of, of how much disparity there is in healthcare. Isn't it the sexes? something like there's until like the 1990s or something, you didn't have to have women in clinical trials or something? Yeah, it was most of the medical research we have is based on a male body and just extrapolated to a female with the assumption Which is that- <laughs> wild. Like as in like, yeah. how could even just like knowing about like probably like one main difference between the sexes in terms of like carrying children and like the menstrual cycle and stuff like that like how an entirely different hormonal profile like how are we expecting the like to be like this is an entire study we did on like all men and maybe like one woman and like we're we wouldn't you'd never be able to do that with like sample size extracting it from like one person to a million people so why would you do it from like literally missing out half of the population well this is it and this is why it's so ironic because they historically excluded women for three main reasons the first is because of our fluctuating hormones and that's right. like a nuisance for them to control In for so we'll just pretend right. they don't exist yeah the second is the risk of pregnancy so there's like an ethical issues and the third is the fact that women have historically been primary caregivers so they just can't like come to the trials but researchers haven't made it like accessible that they would do evening trials or like or like the fact that okay sure sure women are still very much um primary caregivers caregivers, but the thought that like we expect women to be able to go to work but we couldn't possibly do like a or like to be able to attend a doctor's appointment or to be able to like do anything but we couldn't possibly do like a clinical trial to actually determine like what this species is in terms of like how it is like that is it's like laughable it is insane and like it's one of those issues that like I cannot believe isn't talked about more I remember hearing like some of the stats on it a few months ago and this is why I so wanted to do this episode because I was kind of just like we can't seriously still think like that in my mind someone completely like separate to the field absolutely no like knowledge in anything that you kind of specialize in it's like there almost surely should be like a body put together to be like how can we we rework all of these main clinical trials trials that are like the backings of everything we know about medical conditions and redo them essentially like including a 50 50 female to male split like to me that would make sense in terms of being like I'd assume people in the field as well would be like let's get more accurate yeah but 
the fact that it's kind of just like even edging more towards that way rather than there being like a task force put together to literally be like let's redo these main things like where it's going to be quite expensive but you know we've managed to pull task force together for all of these different things as well like to me that's insane yeah yeah and it's definitely you know now you do have to include sex disaggregate disaggregated data but it's happening so slowly and by the time research happens that changes clinical practice takes Mm -hmm. years and in the UK they released the women's health strategy last year um, which is basically outlining all the changes that they're going to do in terms of restructuring of the NHS and research okay and that's a really positive step but it's just it is just paper at the moment Mm -hmm. so everyone's always like asking me to go on the radio and talk about it and I'm like until I see any movements in this I'm not willing to talk about it yes. because we bring out papers all the time and change nothing yes no I mean I think it's absolutely crazy I want to go on to talk about women as small men and all of mm-hmm. that kind of like what that really means to someone from who might not have heard of that kind of at all as a concept but before I want to do that I want to get really clear on the differentiation between sex and gender so that we're referring correctly in this episode to that differentiation yeah absolutely and it's it is tricky because a lot of the research does use sex and gender interchangeably and incorrectly and I found that like quite shocking when going through like research that actually specifically looks at differences between the sexes but then they'll use gender terms gender sure and so when we talk about sex we talk about what's assigned at birth so Mm -hmm. male female and then gender is like how you identify so it does not have to be the same as sex The thing is, when it comes to research, and I'm like clearing the book, because it's not being so clearly separated, when I refer to woman, I'm referring to someone who's been assigned female at birth and identifies as a woman. Because whilst we have like very little research on on actual female people, we have very much less research into trans people. Mm -hmm. And so it is not perfect and I really like recognize that when yeah. I'm talking because I don't want anyone to feel like they're being excluded and mm-hmm. um, so hopefully that makes it of course and I can understand that the other I think that's incredibly important and I think it's not not always going to be got right especially yeah. coming from a perspective of both as people who identifies the sex that we were as, identify gender wise as the sex that we were assigned at birth um so there are going to be nuances that we probably like don't quite understand but I also think that like the alternative to that is steering clear of it completely in Mm. order not to I think when you're approaching it in a way of being like this is how I'm talking about it there are some conflations in the research of the two terms which makes it really hard to kind of differentiate what is like actual findings versus what they're conflating etc etc but I think it's incredibly important as well not to kind of just be like I'm going to steer clear of this completely because I don't want to you know whereas actually realistically the sooner we're able to talk about this in a way that's kind of really open we're able to move also more towards recognizing differences where it might come to you know non-binary identifications or whatever that might be yeah absolutely and that's why I use the term female in the title of the book to make it really clear but whilst we're on the topic both sex and gender influence our health and our health outcomes and I do talk about that in the book because as we'll like go into in the episode, it's not just our biology. It's also like these biases we have about women. Sure. And like that acts as a barrier to our access to healthcare. Okay, that's incredibly interesting. Let's dive into the concept of the female factor, women's health, and kind of why should women care about looking at their health in a different way than they maybe have been taught 
throughout their life or the way they've maybe kind of perceived their healthcare service? Like what led to you writing this book in terms of the way that people should kind of care about that? Well, if we think about the term women's health, it just means reproductive and gynecological health. Right, sure. When actually like our total body health matters. And we have historically been reduced to just that, just like our ability to conceive. And that is our main difference. When really compared to male, a female and a male body is different on a very, on every cellular level because of these hormones Um, and because of our life experiences as well. But because we've excluded women from research historically and we've just assumed that we are smaller men it means that women are assumed to present the same way when it comes to certain conditions be respond to the same treatment and have the same outcomes when in matter of fact that's not correct so if I use heart disease for an example like typically If people think of any adverts they've seen, it will be a white older man clutching his chest. That is like classic heart attack picture. Um, When women are just as likely to die from heart disease, and in fact, they uh, twice as many women die of heart disease in the UK than they do breast cancer, but it's less, there's less awareness around it. Okay. Um, And women are also 1.5 times more likely to be misdiagnosed when having a heart attack compared to a man. And so from onset of symptoms to discharge from hospital at every stage of that process if you look into the research women aren't being served so for example when they first experience symptoms women will typically while chest pain is the most obvious symptom and both sexes experience that most commonly women may also experience nausea shortness of breath symptoms that in the research we say atypical but it's just because it's different sure women are also more likely to put off going to hospital and try self-medicate and put others first so there's a delay and when they get to hospital then if they're not presenting with a classic picture then they're less likely to be uh, correctly diagnosed and when it comes to heart disease we say time is muscle because you want to get the heart perfused as quickly as possible right so all these little delays lead to really devastating effects Even when it comes to diagnostic tests, like we do blood tests and they measure enzyme levels, they may, they're based on a man's heart, which is bigger. And so the the kind of cutoffs may be too high. And this is something that like we know now, the British Heart Foundation have done research on it. We know that women's um, levels are slightly lower and yet it's not yet been integrated into our clinical guidance. So we're still using universal cutoffs. And then when it comes to to discharge, again, women are less likely to be recruited into rehab, which is really important to prevent a second heart attack. Um, How so come? It's, it's mixed up in because they're not willing to attend it. It's not being presented to them. So it's kind of tied up in multiple reasons. The fact of the matter is the fact that we know this we should be driving more awareness yeah. in women. Yeah, we should have, have, like have stronger positive... follow-up for yeah. them. And so if you add all these pieces to the puzzle, like a Swiss cheese model, it means that women are just falling through the gaps. And so right. they're more likely to die after a heart attack than a man would. That poses, I mean, <laughs> I'm not the first person to say this. <laughs> I mean, like, to me, this poses a moral issue. But like, I feel like, hearing all of that so black and white and so kind of straightforward and so uh, even the fact that like the blood test what you would look at against what might be healthy or 
and not healthy or what might be presenting mm. in a way or not presenting in a way. The fact that we don't have the results for what a woman's equivalent would be other than extrapolating from men's, that is absolutely unbelievable. Is that not a huge priority to overturn just for the, like purely, not even from a moral standpoint, but from the standpoint of like getting more accurate science and treatment? Yeah, absolutely. Like this is costing women's lives. Mm. And I, you know, I've been kind of following this research ever since writing the book and also work closely with the British Heart Foundation as their ambassador. And they do lots of research into women's health and released a report like biology and bias and how women are underserved in cardiology care. But this isn't just cardiology. It's yeah. like all of the different disciplines mm. in, in medicine that were like, not treating women the same like even when it comes down to pain management women are less likely to be prescribed painkillers will get them later are more likely to be given antidepressants for their pain and it's just like shocking yeah and like to read it as as a woman it makes me feel like so much anger and to think like it makes me think back on like treating patients do I hold these biases like how are we getting away with this yeah no, I mean, I think it is absolutely kind of unbelievable. And I want to talk about what women can do in order to be able to, I mean, it's not the onus absolutely shouldn't be on women, but like mm. say in this specific case of heart disease, for example, what can women do to kind of advocate for themselves in order to be able to, or kind of, we'll get onto the kind of preventative stuff in terms of like actual lifestyle and the, you know, what you spend a lot of kind of time talking about. Hearing this, it's obviously kind of terrifying. And then you want to be able to go to the doctor and you want to be able to be believed. And then, but you also don't want to be a kind of hypochondriac or you don't want to be wasting people's time, especially kind of in the UK when it's, you know, you're kind of costing the NHS, et cetera, et cetera. What can people do in order to be able to improve their chances of, you know, being correctly diagnosed, et cetera? I would say like don't first of all don't feel like you are being a burden because that's something that women often mm. feel like they are um the fact that women are more likely to be given a psychiatric diagnosis than a physical one for a physical problem compared to a man just really illustrates how we often see women as hysterical um so like a lot of there's like research around um a condition which causes a very high heart rate and lots of women are misdiagnosed with anxiety when they present with it. Because they'll say, like, I've got flutters in my chest. And then the doctor will be like, oh, it's just anxiety. Like, you're just an anxious <laughs> woman. <laughs> so don't dismiss your feelings. I hope no one goes away from this podcast after having, like, a coffee and thinking, oh, my God, I'm having a heart attack. Right. But if you are having, like, severe chest pain that isn't going away after resting, that is, you know, reason to call an ambulance. But if you are experiencing any health condition, regardless of whether it's like, you know, related to your heart or any part of your body, never feel like you're a burden. Mm. Advocate for yourself. If you feel like your GP isn't listening to you, you're very much in your right to ask to speak to someone else. You can bring someone with you. You can take notes. Like, I think the most powerful thing for me when I've seen patients who felt like they're, they haven't been listened to is when they come in and they've had a diary of symptoms and they're like, look, this isn't in my head. I've been experiencing this for three months. And yeah, people might say they shouldn't have to do all of that research. Yeah, I should just sure. believe them straight out. But sometimes it's like really powerful for you to like bring the facts. Mm -hmm. And also it makes you feel a bit more like confident in yeah. what you're saying. Yeah. Because the patterns are on the paper. Yeah, no, for sure. Let's talk about um, 
vitamins, minerals, nutrition, are certain vitamin and mineral requirements particularly important at certain points of women's lives? Yeah, yeah. So the book, um, one of the chapters is nutrition. Uh, obviously, it's my main thing. But I found it the hardest chapter to write because when it comes to food and nutrition between the sexes like the biggest point of difference you'll come across is that women need less calories than men and sure. like it's all wrapped up in like you know this this whole narrative that we should eat less be smaller like even when it comes to like fitness classes it's always you know tone and sculpt and be smaller versions of ourselves. but really nutrition we do have different nutritional requirements to men not just calorie requirements and that is vitamins and minerals and it will change across a woman's life cycle so for example the obvious one like you know our iron requirements increase after we go through puberty around pregnancy we need folic acid through the menopause we need vitamin d and calcium across the menstrual cycle we also have different nutrient requirements right yes which course. i find the most interesting because like for example, in the second phase of the cycle, which is the luteal phase after ovulation, just before the next period, um, progesterone and estrogen is quite high. And we burn up to 300 calories extra per day. So our metabolism's higher because our body is doing all this extra work. We break down more protein during that time. We also use other specific nutrients in excess. And what we find is that women typically will have like a response that you can really correlate to that increase in progesterone, which will be increased cravings for food, mm -hmm. increased food intake. And I don't know about you, but a lot of women come to me and, and they're always like, I can't deal with those cravings around my period. And I find it's really helpful to explain that to women. Yeah. This is what's happening. It's not all in your head. You're not yeah. going crazy. And actually, there's just like, you can make some smart nutritional fixes around this time to help control those cravings, like adding in more kind of high fiber, complex carbs, increase your protein, healthy fats. And yeah, if you crave chocolate, it's fine to have chocolate. It's not going to do anything harmful to you. The most interesting part, I think, is that like, when you split people up at school in terms of like having the kind of PSHE classes and talking about, um, you know, talking about sex, talking about a kind of periods, like all of these things, it's like, it is that whole kind of cliche that like the male students like learn about like sex, but not really anything other than like use a condom yeah. and like we're being taught kind of like you're going to have a period and also like never have sex and like nothing about kind of like consent or any of these experience. important things, like nothing about like the fact that like I would consider myself quite like a curious person who like I read a lot, I listen to a lot of things, I you know spend a lot of time consuming information because I'm you know find things very interesting. The fact that I kind of didn't hear about the fact that I might be training differently or consuming differently or feeling different because of these specific things that aren't just like oh women get really weak and moody around their periods like imagine changing your entire hormonal profile for like a period of time like mm. of course it's going to change the way that you're like even you saying like you're burning 300 calories extra like that's probably the only thing that like a like someone will hear and be able to kind of like justify like then cravings mm. rather than just being like, you know, we, we know when we're pregnant, for example, that there's going to be a difference in terms of the amount you might need to eat. Sure. It might not be double, but it's going to be like, there's going to be a significant difference. The fact that it's like pretty much nowhere in like normal, you know, you'd have to go really out of your way to find out these things mm. to me is just insane. Yeah. Yeah, that's it. And I think, like you quite rightly said, at puberty, you learn about, like, 
your period but mm-hmm. you don't learn about the entire other part of the menstrual cycle the yes. period is typically the first five days of an average 28 to 29 day cycle yes. but there's so much else that happens during yeah, those and weeks you're always in the cycle at some point you're always in it and so if you if we were teaching people from an early age like this is what's happening in the different phases you might feel like this you might feel great here you might feel stronger here at this point of the cycle you might want to have some more magnesium like telling people how to do this would help them have a much better experience of the menstrual cycle and like dare I say even enjoy it but we're just told <laughs> it's terrible and like yeah to just it's just a period yeah, and crazy. everything else is a roller coaster that you just have to ride that whole point <laughs> about like the concentration being like the days where you're bleeding and it's actually like you know that's like this like such a small part of the pie if you're looking at like the actual way that we're kind of operating throughout an entire month or however your cycle might fall like is just I mean it's ridiculous that we're literally taught like you're gonna bleed and you're gonna need a tampon and then they're like bye yeah (laughs) like good luck yeah like have fun for the rest of your life and like we also normalize how painful it should be Mm. which is why like you know I think like a lot of women put off going to the their GP Mm. with like really heavy really painful periods because they're like oh it's normal yeah I mean I I don't know we kind of I think we briefly talked about this but I I know you know I've been on birth control since I was like 13 because it happened because of having like such painful periods to the point that like you know I would get I would not be able to see because I'd have such bad aura from migraines. My sister gets it too. She'll be like vomiting on the bathroom floor and like lying on the cold mm. tiles for like her entire period. And like kind of just being like, we'll stick you on this pill or like we'll stick. Like I was even put on a combined pill when my family literally has thrombosis. And it was kind of just like little girl in pain, like give her this pill in order to be able to like essentially change my hormonal profile completely when like actually you know, if more questions were asked, it would have been seen that I'm literally the worst candidate for you to be like even giving that kind of at all. I just think that, I mean, the, the normalization of that kind of type of pain and then, you know, it's seen as such like a trivial topic. Like if you look at comments on anything where it's like menstrual leave, yeah, Yeah. menstrual leave. And then it's kind of like the trivialization of that because it like wipes out the concentration from like, I I mean, I don't think that's trivial, but I think like you, you'll, it only takes you to look at some like Facebook comments on that and be like, oh, boohoo. And like all of this. And it's like, also we could get like great treatment on like PCOS and endometriosis that would actually like help women know if they have like a, like a serious condition that means that they're actually going to be they're going to find it pretty hard to function for a lot of their life. That's it. I remember watching this, like, I can't remember what it was. It was a documentary that I watched a few months ago. And it was women with endometriosis. Was it below the belt? Yeah, I think it was. And it was, like, trying alternative treatments. Yeah. And I remember just, like, one of the women being like, oh, yeah, I'd, like strongly considered suicide multiple times because of like and doctors being like periods are painful and it's like this is to the point that someone's experiencing pain that they believe that it might be better for them not to live in order to be able to like and you're telling them it's normal physiological pain because women bleed like we're not in the Tudor times like you know don't need to be like actually on the like verge of like not being able to like live anymore or actually like passing out from pain in order to be able to take be taken seriously yeah I completely agree with you I think like in my gynae rotation when I was a med student one of the clinics I was assigned to was an endometriosis clinic and it was the most profound experience because I've never seen women 
so distraught and like it was a male consultant and he was fantastic like he made me want to be like going to ops and gynae because he was just like whatever you do do not dismiss a woman in pain like these women did not just have really heavy painful periods they were unable to have sex because it was so painful even going to the bathroom was extremely painful mom deserves better than a drugstore card This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. They were having difficulty conceiving. Like it's it's not just heavy periods. It's like quite like a full body mm. syndrome. And it's so, it's it takes on average eight years to be diagnosed. Eight, like eight years. And like looking at the fact that, you know, young teenagers will be getting their periods that kind of like, I mean, I think I was like 11 or something. And then just going, like your first experience of like actual severe pain and like going to a doctor and then being like, oh, welcome to womanhood and you're like oh no I'm literally like vomiting on the bathroom floor like (laughs) this doesn't seem like something that should be normal and then but the fact that like even like endometriosis for example like that eight-year diagnosis time is shocking but then on top of that like the fact that you can only really properly diagnose it through opening up someone's body like you cannot tell me that if that was a male condition we wouldn't have like significant improvements in research in order to be able to diagnose that like outside of literally cutting someone open yeah yeah it's I mean it's just shocking and I think we could talk about it for years (laughs) um in terms of like actionable advice for vitamins and minerals and what people should be kind of prioritizing is there anything that would kind of be like I know it's obviously very specific to the person but I know you said for example like increasing iron intake Mm. like after going through puberty like increasing protein intake in your luteal phase are there any kind of real tips that you'd give in terms of like the types of vitamins that women should be making sure they're getting when there's so much kind of conflicting advice yeah it complete completely depends on where you're at in your lifespan like pre-menopausal pregnant post-menopausal but in general like take the menstrual cycle as an example um across the fluctuating kind of 28 day I always say 28 day because it's like general guide what people know but Mm -hmm. if you're not textbook 28 day it's fine um so across the month we'll see fluctuations in hormones which influence like what nutrients we need um our energy requirements and so at the very start of the cycle during the period or menstruation there's actually like a huge amount of inflammation going on in the body and that's why we feel like cramps and bloating and headachey 
And one way you can kind of help offset that at least a little bit is with like an anti-inflammatory diet. So thinking about like colorful fruits and vegetables, like lots of herbs and spices, whole grains. Um, A lot of women also report that they get like quite loose stools around their period because of that drop in progesterone, but also because of all the inflammation. So you may want to steer clear of like fried and fatty foods, caffeine, sugar-free foods, those foods that can like really stimulate your gut and make things worse. Oh, interesting. So I the thought of me staying away from fried and fatty foods during my period is like <laughs> ambitious <laughs> to say the least. Um but I yeah, that's so interesting and I can so see why. I remember once seeing this like animation of how your if your body's like well ha- when your uterus I th- I think is inflamed and like the way it like shifts the other organs around it kind of like when you're pregnant but like if it's obviously like swelling mm. because of your period and I remember like seeing this animation and like it's showing kind of how like it can also say like hit against something which will mean that you you know you'll get worse cramps or whatever it might be and I remember being like oh my god I've never actually like thought of the fact because I get really bad um like it wouldn't be bloating it would be like inflammation around mm. my period but it literally looks like I'm about like five six months pregnant and like yeah. it's it's like quite hilarious because it literally looks like the perfect shape for as if I was actually having a baby I've had multiple times where I've been like oh my god if someone sees me right now <laughs> I'm actually there's gonna be like rumors leaked that's um it. but but yeah and like then when you think about it you're like of course like of if course. that's gonna change size and you're thinking of a circumference that's not actually like that big then something's else something else is like gotta give and yeah. it's likely gonna be squished well, that's it. So yeah, you can help yourself in that way. Um, obviously like iron rich foods are really important then, but really across like your 28 day cycle for a woman. Um, and then in the next phase, just like after your period in that like late follicular phase, estrogen like comes back up and progesterone remains low. And this week is when people typically feel their best. Your mood is better. Your energy is higher. Your appetite's probably less. Um, and that's because of the estrogen as well. Estrogen's like literally wonder drug. Mm. Um, like my friend Adrienne calls this, like calls that week like her power week because mm. she feels like stronger and like better. And and typically Apparently we are. you're more attractive too. You're more, uh, so you get like your skin your as well changes. Oh, interesting. Um, so we call that like the ovulation glow. Yeah. Um, and it's like just the right balance of estrogen's very like, anti-aging and it makes your skin look a lot more plump and firmer and um progesterone can cause like that causes more like sebaceous like um oil and like Mm. oily skin so later in the cycle you'll find you get like oily skin spots and that kind of thing so we love estrogen um such a shame I can't go on the combined pill (laughs) (laughs) I remember one of my friends um when she first went on one of the combined pills when we were like 14 she just came on in one day and she was like guys look at my boobs (laughs) she was like she was like my boobs have gotten so big and my skin has got so clear and we were all like what's the pill like someone tell us the pill yeah that that particular pill is very good for acne Mm. Um, and then into your luteal phase, so after ovulation, around that time when progesterone is high, your temperature is going to be higher, you're going to retain more water. Um, and like I said earlier, you're burning more calories at rest, you break down more protein, um, and you'll have higher hunger and cravings. So mm-hmm. like, make sure, and typically people experience constipation. So you're getting in, what you want to get in is like lots of high fiber foods, um, higher protein, healthy fats are still really important and like omega-3 fatty acids to help reduce that inflammation before your next period 
And, and would you generally say to eat more during that time? Yeah, I would say be intuitive about it, yeah. like um, because it will vary from person to person, like how much calories we're using. But what I try to like really hammer home with a lot of women is that like don't feel like because you've got cravings, you need to avoid them and just drink coffee and have gum because you're like afraid of it like listen to your body if it needs more energy it needs more energy yeah and just focus on like getting in as much of the good stuff as you can um and like also we're like less hydrated so making sure you're just like drinking more water and then later in that phase like a lot of women will experience pms so 90 percent of women experience at least some form of uh, premenstrual uh, symptom and then premenstrual syndrome then is like a smaller subset of women. So that means like it's clinically significant and that it's causing like an effect on your day-to-day life. So okay. it's really impacting you. And then an even, even smaller subset of women experience PMDD, which is like PMS, but a lot more like mental disturbance. So mental health issues. And that's really tied to your cycle. Mm. So if you're someone who experiences PMS, um, there are certain nutrients that like could be helpful magnesium supplementation and calcium and vitamin d they would be like the top ones and omega-3 is really important as well um we know that like omega um, magnesium can help with like period bloat and can help with um, migraine as well if you get it around your period and then calcium and vitamin d typically are lower in women with pms and when we supplement it in trials it seems to improve symptoms so Mm. Again, like we're talking about like very little research in the space, but Mm -hmm. more and more is coming out. And I think like hopefully in the future we'll be able to be a little bit more detailed and like what to eat for your cycle. But right now it's been, it's really more intuitive. And I'm a huge advocate of like tracking your cycle, tracking your cravings, Mm. like really learn what your body needs at those different phases. What types of tools would you recommend for people to track their cycle? I use clue I think it is yeah I use clue as well I mean you can be as like basic as pen and paper or like just Mm. write in your notes like when your period's coming when it ends when you think you're ovulating and any other symptoms across the month but now that we've got apps that are so accessible and easy to use like I think flow clue there's one called like fitter woman which is more catered towards like kind of female athletes or very active women yeah um but there's so many and I think like just start tracking it for at least three months and that will give you a good snapshot of of like kind of what's happening and things and it helps inform I remember I used to think that my period was irregular but I think what happened was that it actually just wasn't a textbook 28 day cycle and so in my head I was like I there's no nothing's going to be able to predict it because it's crazy yeah and then I remember putting it in I've like tracked my period for years now one thing that's really this is so anecdotal <laughs> so strange and actually like just not useful to the conversation but my body seems to work on a 12 month cycle just just like the world yeah. yeah just like the world goes around the sun because in August I have my period for three weeks every time really yeah Three a three week period. A three week period. I don't feel like it's normal, Grace. <laughs> that is something that you should oh, no, get no, checked I'm out. Well, <laughs> I'm well aware. I have like, as in, like PCOS and stuff. But like, as in, yeah. No, there's some strange things going on. But I thought that was quite a but you're kind of fun the, fact for everyone. I think like it's that's an an important point in that like your period will change across yeah. your like years and like what Not my experience August. of my menstrual cycle is when I was a teenager is completely different to now right yeah yeah yeah. and it evolves all the time so I think and it will change with like your lifestyle and like how stressed Mm. you are like Mm. working in the pandemic I just lost my period and then it just came back (laughs) 
That's so interesting. Mm. And I often think, like, I want to talk about stress a little bit and um, kind of women and stress-related conditions. But in that, on that kind of front, I always think that, like, when talking about women and stress in particular, it's, like, often on a patro- in a patronising sense. Like, it's often been like, oh, you're a little bit stressed. Like, as you said, in terms of, like, diagnosing anxiety when someone has a heart condition, yeah. et cetera, et cetera. Like, the idea of us seeing stress as something that is um to do with our like mental resilience rather than also like a literal hormonal like impact like if you're the effect that stress can actually have on your body is obviously like insane or like the you know I had a physiologist on the podcast and he was kind of saying how your body can't really differentiate between like literally going to war and having like you know going through a divorce or like whatever it might be which I'm not saying that you know like they're obviously very different like um life moments but in terms of like actually the effect on your body in terms of kind of like hormones and as you say like losing your period and all of that is just like the fact that we think of it as something that we just need to kind of like push through and get more resilient at rather than actual like lifestyle changes to I mean I'm number one culprit for that I'm like any medical consultation I have and they're like so how stressful is your life and I'm like I'm in a very high stress job and they're like is there any bandwidth to change that and I'm like nope yeah (laughs) like I'm afraid not I'll see you in a few years that's the thing um it's like probably the the most difficult thing for people to manage Mm. um but when it comes to stress and like our menstrual cycle because like all of our hormonal axes in the body don't just like work in isolation they like work from like a master regulator in your brain that like feed down to like tell your ovaries produce um these hormones stress also comes and works in that feedback loop so like cortisol will like cortisol will down regulate those hormones which is why if you're really stressed especially over a long period of time it will just tell your hormones uh your ovaries to just stop producing hormones and so typically people will skip a period or miss it for a few weeks if they've gone through like trauma like grief or the pandemic And the longer that goes on forward, the longer it can disrupt it. Like we're all very different. But what I say is like your menstrual cycle should be a vital sign. Like it should, it tells you how healthy your body is. Mm. And so if it just disappears, don't just ignore it. Like that's reason to go speak to a doctor. Yeah, no, absolutely. And why are women more likely to experience stress-related conditions? Yeah, I found this chapter really uh, interesting to write for the book because it goes back to what we said in the beginning in that like, especially when it comes to mental health, it's not just our biology. So male, female, it's also our gender and our social norms and how society views us as like man and woman. Mm -hmm. And so to like tease up apart is really difficult. So the stats are that like women are twice as likely to experience anxiety and depression in their lifetime, be diagnosed with it. And that's true of all the anxiety disorders, even like phobias and things like that. The reason why that is, we're not entirely sure. It seems to be both biology and and kind of social and gender um, kind of norms and how we deal with stress. Mm -hmm. So on a kind of biological level, there seems to be something to do with hormones and how we respond differently in terms of that like fight fight or flight response. So men typically will fight in a kind of stressful scenario, whereas women they use this term in the research called tend and befriend where they'll look after or they'll look out for their offspring or the people closest to them first and then they'll deal with themselves and we are more dependent 
on other people for our mental health and our mental well-being than men are they're more men are more independent um in terms of their emotion but also like we have kind of gender norms of like men should be stoic and like kind of keep their feelings in whereas like women are hysterical and they cry all the time and they're emotional and it's down to our hormones and that's the thing that can get really sinister because for both men and women because then men you know don't deal with their feelings and then they'll externalize it and go to drinking or gambling or suicide whereas women will ruminate and they will experience depression anxiety and other phobias and uh, like I said earlier in the episode women are more likely to be given a psychiatric diagnosis for a physical problem Mm -hmm. even in research where both men and male and female patients will present with the same symptoms with the same condition and yet doctors will be more likely to give the man um kind of more formal investigations like x-rays and they're more likely to give women lifestyle advice and send them home with anti-anxiety medication. That's helpful, thank you. Mm. I will go to the gym rather than getting this MRI scan, thank you. That is crazy. It's crazy, and women are, even when we account for rates of anxiety, women are more likely to be on antidepressants and anti-anxiety meds, so there's like this huge discrepancy in who we're prescribing to. It also kind of feels like the fact that, and this might be, a bit of a reach but like the fact that when I've kind of you know might be sat in might be like a PCOS consultation whatever it might be and they're kind of talking about stress and the effect of it and I completely understand like I should probably live a less stressful life but like I also feel like I am quite good at dealing with stress in terms of the way that I um kind of perform and it's always you know I, I feel more comfortable in a little bit of chaos and kind of all of that and the fact that my I do sometimes question whether women, it's seen as less necessary for a woman to live a stressful life. So it's kind of like when asking someone like, oh, are you in a stressful job? And almost being able to assume that they might be able to change their lifestyle to stop that stressful Mm -hmm, job. Like, I'm not sure you'd listen to a man being like, and then when they're like, oh, what what makes your job so stressful? And kind of being like, oh, well, you know, I have a VC-backed startup and it's, you know, it's quite a lot of work and it's pretty chaotic and it changes all the time and all of this I'm not sure you'd ever assume that a man would kind of have an option to like chill that out a bit Mm. it's kind of like the are ingrained kind of well women are the caregivers and men are working like even the suggestion of being like oh could you just like chill that out a bit seems like it's almost like a little bit of playtime because it's a woman's job rather than being that yeah yeah it's um that's it and it's I think like all these things like contribute to that narrative we have around women and like I'm not completely dismissing the fact that women do experience anxiety and I Mm. don't want to yeah of course um anyone to think that like I myself have a, a a diagnosis of anxiety but I think it shouldn't be the diagnosis of default. Oh, it no, should be course. the diagnosis of exclusion. Yeah, things can still exist and not be, That's it. you know, the default. Of course. And I think when it comes to kind of female biology, we also see like this massive divergence in depression um, diagnoses after puberty between f- females and males. So there's definitely like some kind of hormonal workings going on there but the other thing that like I think is really important to think about is at puberty as well it's not just 
these like new hormones that you're experiencing but you're also probably at a new school you've probably just discovered boys you've just like discovered mean girls so there's like lots of things that could be contributing to your mood yeah um so yes hormones are at play but we should all also like think about what else is going on in someone else's life yeah so I want to talk about sleep and its kind of overall effect on your health can you talk a little bit to that yeah absolutely I actually seen a TikTok recently of another doctor who's like a CrossFit doctor and she was like sleep is the number one performance drug and I was like that's so true (laughs) because it is it's like when we release most of our like growth hormones and anabolic hormones and when we do all our recovery and like when our body basically just presses a reset but it's not like a passive process Mm. so much happens when we're asleep so it's not something you can like kind of skip out on um like we can tie it to basically every kind of health outcome whether it's like cardiovascular disease whether it's stress-related diseases or anxiety disorders whether it's like gut health issues like stress is so incredibly important for everything but also like like you know it helps us perform better it helps us like maintain attention and focus like contribute to our relationships be less irritable so it's one of the most kind of the biggest low-hanging fruit that we can have for our health Mm. um like even one night of poor sleep and I know you don't want to hear this right now uh, can like impair your immune system and make you more susceptible to catching Mm. a cold I mean I am sleep's biggest fan (laughs) I think that like there is this assumption that like especially in the type of work I do there's this whole like obviously there's all the 5am club stuff but there's also the kind of like sleep when you're dead like you can just like sleep four hours and then you get like x amount more hours work and it's like I will be the first person to say that first of all I must get eight hours every night like I really I am weak I like I it is what I need I can't make decisions on it otherwise I mean obviously I can make decisions but like I am a completely different person and that is my threshold and I know some people are happy on less some people are happy on more to me it actually hugely changes like everything and like I can so believe like all of the science around sleep I'm like yes I see it it changes me completely it changes my like how I get ill it changes like absolutely everything but even like my overthinking reflex is like completely different when I haven't had sleep so like last night for example when I was up from like three or whatever it was I was thinking about this and actually the night before as well I was thinking about this thing and I know I can't trust myself like I can't trust myself at that time in the night when I've had that much sleep because I'll think about it and I catastrophize to such an extent and it's like I it's like I'm possessed because I'm like in that moment I'm like I know I this isn't actually what I'm thinking and it's almost like I'll explode if I don't do something about it but I'm also like you don't you're not thinking about this Mm. like as in like you're not thinking about this in like a rational sense and your responses and your like catastrophizing of it is like not normal and then I think that like it took me so long to realize like actually how important it was and actually how when you think about getting enough hours sleep a night versus like okay it might be working in those hours instead like when people are like get you know four hours sleep and like work until 11 or whatever it might be I realized that for me personally that was actually like less good self-control because it's you trusting the process less and having to spend more time working that's not actually like productive because you're thinking like oh it's all about hours rather than about actual like substance and what you can bring to those hours but like I am the biggest believer in like I mean I'm a whole different person when I haven't slept properly and I just know it's not something I can compromise like it's just 
yeah, I will do anything to make sure I get my sleep and otherwise I will not be making decisions. Yeah, I agree with you. I agree with you. I think like as I've gotten older, I've definitely appreciated it more. And yeah. now that I know what I know, I'm like, why did I pull all nighters when I was like probably sabotaging yeah. my chances at doing well in these exams? Yeah. When like the most, like that's when we consolidate our yeah, memories. Yeah, your brain actually wasn't going to work. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like your brain actually wasn't going to work well the next day when you were revi- revising through the night. Obviously there's a limit like when you actually don't know anything about something then it's probably best to you know be doing some revising but no I completely agree I think that's one of the biggest things um again just fun facts from Grace that's one of the biggest things that terrifies me about having children Mm, it's just not being able to control (laughs) your sleep like I think about it a lot like I think that will change the entire timeline of like when I like hopefully think about having children yeah is like the fact that like I just I just know I won't be able to perform anywhere near as much because I'm so weak when it comes to like my like sleep disturbance and like how it affects my day that's it you're just gonna have to accept it I'm the oh, same mm, I'm not sure <laughs> I just never will um but no I think that that is all like incredibly important and I think that we often it feels again like this kind of like weak thing that we need to be doing and just like it's our like body's um downfall that it needs to kind of have this sleep whereas actually it's like oh no it's like it can be like your superpower like actually getting that much yeah it's why we're such an advanced species because we have to recover and like your experience of like kind of being awake and ruminating in the middle of the night is like very universal for Mm, women yeah like it's it's women will typically get more hours in bed but less good quality sleep okay because we do have more awakenings in the night and like I know I'm the exact same as you yeah and my boyfriend's like, like, how does this happen to you so regularly? Yeah. Like, you've had no caffeine. You've, like, gone yeah. to bed at a good time. And I'm like, it just happens. Yeah, <laughs> it's just a thing. <laughs> yeah, no, I completely get that. And what what steps can people take in order to be able... First of all, actually, what thresholds can people be, like, aiming for in terms of, like, what they, you know, general rules around sleep? Yeah, I mean, the, like, magic number is really, like, seven to eight hours of sleep. Mm. Um, and... I think anything below six, definitely anything below five is when you start to see like poor health outcomes, especially if it's like consistent. Like, I don't mean that like, you know, you have a night out and you get five hours sleep. Fair enough. But if you're doing it like quite regularly, five to six hours, like, and if there's nothing else you change in your life, that would be the one thing I'd like say, can you increase that? Like, can you get into bed half an hour early? If you can't, can you nap in the day? Like, just try to make up as much sleep as you can. Like some people argue that you can't make up your sleep debt, but I think like if that's your only option, that's yeah, what I do. Because it can be quite refreshing. Um, but other than that, like I think sleep hygiene, like sleep's gotten quite big recently, maybe with the Matthew Walker book. Yeah. Um, but what I'd say is like your a good night's sleep starts first thing in the morning. And so what you should be doing is viewing early morning, early morning light at least 30 minutes on waking which is really hard because not much of us not many of us will like wake up and be at the door in 30 minutes and also the UK doesn't sponsor light like it's it's just like mm, afraid not until now like it's only starting to get light in the mornings but what I do in the winter months is like I will sit in front of my sad lamp Mm. which um when I'm like writing my to-do list and just like getting ready so 30 minutes of that can like replicate Mm. kind of 10 minutes outside um, and that the be- the benefits of that is that it basically shifts your circadian rhythm and makes you feel sleepy earlier. Okay. Um, it helps you have a more restful sleep. Then like across the day, thinking about like what you're doing, like definitely try to move your body at some point, which can help with sleep. 
I would cut off like caffeine consumption at midday at least. Yeah, I do um, that and people think I'm crazy. But no, I remember just to. hearing, I think it was on the Matthew Walker, um, in the Matthew Walker book or he talked about it on a podcast. Um, but it was the, it was like the half-life, half-life. of caffeine. Yeah, it can be up to 10 hours in some yeah, people. Right. So like if you have your last coffee at 12, you could still be metabolizing it at 10 p.m. Right, which is not what you want to be. <laughs> not what you want. Um, but also thinking about like your last meal time and try to have that like three hours before bed, which is tricky. Yeah, so I have a new heart rate monitor um, and it always tells me when I've like, it knows when I've had a late meal. Mm. It's like, it's like, oh, you had a late meal last night and therefore your your heart rate was higher like throughout the night and didn't settle until like 6am, which means that you're feeling like less restful today. And I'm like, you're so smart. Like, yeah. you, know, like you know me so well, honey. Well, that's, that's but it's it. so true. And I didn't realize because I think my... I operate on such a routine and that routine is based entirely around like my work performance Mm. that it's kind of and also like wanting to fit social life in there that it's like this is the only option so it's like this is how we're gonna do it but actually looking at that and being like could I maybe even like if I'm gonna stay late at work could I and I know this is really bad but like could I maybe have my dinner at work before I go home and then just relax when I go home rather than being like well I'm I want to be in front of the tv relaxing having dinner so I'm Mm. gonna like shift that later um but like it always I have like a much worse score on like my readiness and everything when I've like had a later meal which I think is I mean it's like I didn't trust the science (laughs) well that's it. it you know your body has to if it's like focusing on digesting food it's diverting its energy away from like important restorative processes Mm. um so yeah I would say like try to have your last meal three hours before bed but it's not always possible especially like when you're socializing three hours yeah there is yeah no way (laughs) I'm afraid but thank you (laughs) Um, and then the other thing like that people often use to help them fall asleep is alcohol Mm -hmm. and it can help you fall asleep quicker but it will mean that like the quality of your sleep just for clarifying I just said yes like I have like a like shot of vodka before bed (laughs) and like I just like to clarify that that's what I was like ah yes Yes. my like hot toddy (laughs) my nightcap (laughs) me just sitting there with my bottle by the bed (laughs) yeah which is not the case but I do agree like when I have a glass of red wine I'm like oh perfect yeah because it makes you feel sleepy and for some people like yeah maybe one drink won't affect you but the research suggests otherwise (laughs) I know for me that like if it's anything over one glass of wine like even just like one and a smidge like my sleep will be completely disrupted and Mm. like I also track my sleep and my recovery will be like red line and I'm like you it just the impact alcohol has on your body and like I'm you know I'm not like an anti-alcohol person but I do think once you start to really realize the effects on your body you're like this cannot be good for me yeah god it's just no fun it's no fun (laughs) it's It's no fun and then like last kind of thing before night I think everyone knows this like not to be looking at blue light emitting advices devices and like turning down overhead lights um and like use lamps like your candles instead and like have your room dim dark and quiet yeah like and I do I I I believe so strongly in sleep hygiene in terms of like the subliminal messages you give your body in order for it to know like Mm -hmm. that you're going to sleep like there's this one I think it's called like deep sleep on Spotify it's just like this playlist that I turn on it's like if I'm there's there's two playlists there's like essentially but I it's like my body knows that in that moment and it's just like these like kind of simulating it from these different areas and just being like 
I don't know, it's like I suddenly feel like I'm in like this cocoon and I'm like, okay, it's sleep time. And it really, really does work. And it's just like these cues that actually kind of, whether you know it or not, or whether you find it stupid or not, like having that kind of routine that makes your body think, oh no, I know what time it is now. Yeah, that's so important, like a sleep routine. And um, one of my friends, Michael, says like, the sun doesn't just like set, like it slowly sets. So like, don't expect yourself to just like get into right. bed and be like, yeah exactly it takes time so like regardless of what your routine is if it's like spraying lavender spray on your pillow or your favorite pajamas or having a bath like or having a herbal tea regardless of what it is if that's what you do every night it will send a signal to your head it's like why uh, reading kids books before bed works because they're like oh it's bedtime I know this like this is familiar it's time to go to sleep yeah no I could no no I see that it's like when your dog knows like what time of the day it is like when your dog knows it's like walk time or like when your dog like as in it's specific like as in it's based on your movements that you probably don't even know you do but it like gives you that cue so you're welcome I could work in science (laughs) just like yeah sure you're all dogs (laughs) yeah your little pooches going for a poo um but honestly this has been such an interesting podcast so actionable um I will be prescribing myself more sleep tonight um although I will be having alcohol so it probably will cancel each other out um but no thank you so much for coming on you're welcome you've been um great and I've learned so much and I'm sure people will find it incredibly helpful I hope so thank you for having me Mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com